Tommy Hilfiger. My dad is Tommy Hilfiger. We just prance around this damn city like it's like our shopping haven. People think we have it all together. Money does not buy happiness. Just because we're rich doesn't mean that we're not good people. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to a new weekly bonus episode of Chart of Fortune, the astrology podcast where I look at the birth charts of the moments and things that made pop culture. I'm your host, Elise Blaylock, and this is the sixth episode of a special mini-series I'm calling Summer Fridays. Each week, I review an episode of the 2003 MTV reality show, Rich Girls. We open the show with a creepy-ass song that sounds like it came from ghost children frolicking through the Hilfiger, Connecticut compound. The singer, who I later learned was named Jane, uses breathy and seemingly haunted by unspeakable acts of violence and evil, saying, It is a fine day, people open windows, they leave their houses just for a short walk. Well, they doesn't include Allie, who's walking around her backyard complaining on her phone. She says the following soliloquy of self-indulgent brattiness that makes Hamlet seem like a well-adjusted young man who's just like really into talking to skulls. She is crying, telling Papa Hilfiger, you know when you just kind of have, like, nothingness? And not even anything to be upset about? You just are? Dad, I'm really confused. And Dad, I just feel really lonely. And Dad, what am I going to do with my life? I'm so confused. And I also don't want to be living at home for the rest of my life. And I don't want you to be supporting me for the rest of my life. I, I want to get my own place. I just feel so lost, you know? I only wish that Allie Phil- Hilfiger could have heeded the wise words once said to me. What am I to do with my life? You will find it out, don't worry. And how am I supposed to know what's right? You just gotta do it your way. To be fair, they weren't so much directly said to me as they were sung by the Lord and Savior of this podcast, Brittany Jean Spears, in her 2001 album Crossroads song, Overprotected. Free Brittany. Action! Okay, back to the episode. But Allie isn't done. She adds, having stopped crying to bounce a ball in one hand while holding her flip phone in the other, she says, there is no food in the house. I mean, parents are like supposed to make their children's life easy all the time, you know? It's just like, I'm not going to have you there in a jiffy my whole life. You know, I have to, I have to deal with stuff like this, you know? I miss my childhood so much. Lately, even for like a year or two, anytime I think about it or someone brings up my childhood, I get a big ball in my throat and sometimes I cry about it. Do you understand how many of my therapists have told me how much of my childhood that I missed? I didn't really go through in adolescence and I think it's really starting to affect me. I really want to see Jamie. End scene. But Jamie is back in Manhattan dealing with issues of her own. Her computer just crashed. Her mother offers real advice, saying she'll read her horoscope for guidance. Jamie, ever the skeptical Capricorn, refuses, saying she just needs to buy a new computer. Sheila, who has seemingly recovered from last week's brush with her own mortality, summons the courage to take Jamie to a relic of the early 2000s, something now lost to time in niche Instagram memes, Circuit City. I joked in the original episode that Jamie's prom date looked like he was old enough to be the manager of a Circuit City. The only thing sadder than him not being there was Sheila and her Pendleton wool arm cast thing making googly eyes at the sales associate when she asked him if they sell a Prada bag to put that laptop in. Sheila, you dog. We cut back to Allie, who, having surveyed the fridge while on the phone with Tommy, concludes that the eggs that are in there will not do. 
She plans to make herself a burrito after having eaten nothing all day. In an attempt to learn to take care of herself, she bravely ventures into Whole Foods, like Hamlet confronting his mother Gertrude for the murder of his father. Hallie pushes the cart through the store, asking random employees for help with what ingredients go in a burrito and how to make nachos. What beans should she buy? She stares longingly at the salsa for way too long. What cheese goes into these foods? Her friend Danielle arrives at the Hilfiger home, and together they set out to make burritos. Allie chops the onion while Danielle makes rice, but neither knows exactly how to cook. And this leads me to Burrito Gate. Seemingly out of nowhere, Allie loses her shit. In the middle of Danny recalling a so-so date she was on, Allie interrupts her and says, I want my food. I haven't eaten all fucking day. I'm really on edge right now. I feel like I'm going to scream. What is the matter with me? What is this? Why does this make me feel like I want to cry, though? Like, what is my problem? I don't understand it. Ah! I hate cilantro, and it's on this thing, and all I want is my onion and tomato in this beef. She slams the knife with the rice, slams the knife again, with the cheese and avocado, and I want to eat it, and I can't. I'm so mad and hungry. She continues to hit the knife repeatedly against the cutting board, saying, Oh my god, I'm going to flip out with a knife. I can't do it. I don't know what to do with myself. This incident feels less and less to me like someone who simply has not eaten all day. There isn't that hanger, biting annoyance. There's a more violent mania that seems to underline her speech patterns and her behavior. This is the moment I think I remember most about this show. How erratic and upsetting and odd Allie's behavior was. In her book, she offers a little insight into this episode, saying that it was mostly directly related to her Lyme disease. She admits that she realized too late on this Monday, yes, it was a Monday, that she would be responsible for a whole day of filming and she would need to provide the MTV crew with a plan for that day because Jamie needed a day off. She thinks learning to make burritos would be an excellent story arc. And she says in the book, quote, I needed someone else on camera with me and to help me make the burritos. All I wanted was to eat as soon as possible and in a comfortable environment. My heart had been racing the whole day, my hands felt shaky, and I couldn't think clearly anymore. Partly this was because of my hangover, but it was also a feeling I often had without having a hangover at all. I didn't know this then, but Lyme sufferers can feel as though they have a hangover every single day, whether or not they take a single drink. What makes it even more diabolical is that you don't look like absolute death. You just feel that way. End. Allie listens to a bunch of questions from Danielle that she has clearly no way of answering. Danielle, I'm guessing, is a fast-talking Gemini who's trying to be nice, but she's like way in over her head. But the part I have to share is that Allie tells us the next scene that we never saw on camera. She's, she wrote, I grabbed Danielle's hand and ran outside, and we jumped into the swimming pool with all of our clothes on, microphones still attached. I dragged her with me. I didn't care what happened. I wanted to escape and feel free, and it was the only way to shut her up. It looked like a fun, innocent, lighthearted thing to do in the moment, but little did anyone know I was so overwhelmed that all I could do was jump in the deep, cold water to numb out. I didn't know alcohol wasn't the answer. I knew I had drunk enough that weekend, and I didn't want to be totally annihilated on screen. And all I wanted to do was eat a fucking burrito. Back to New York City, where Jamie experiences the pure, inexorable tear of many an elder millennial when she finds she cannot print out her plane ticket at home. But there's little time to waste because she's got a flight to Seattle to catch, and she has to convince Allie to do the same. 
But don't forget which rich girl I'm referencing here. Instead of the soft speaking tones of a person trying to cajole another into a cross-country flight, Jamie is a salty seagoat and she's got the phlegmatic humor associated with the final earth sign of the zodiac. Into the phone, she tells Allie, quote, no one has to be happy all the time. Alf love worked because the rich girls meet up at the airport. But before meeting Jamie at the airport, Allie forces us and Danielle through one more tirade. She's saying, traveling equals stress for me. Honestly, I'm going to tell you all day and all weekend and all last night, all I wanted to do was pick up my paintbrush and paint on a canvas. And it's just been bursting out of me. There've been so many instances where I've either been in a car or somewhere else where I just have this strong desire to paint. Because today, this is what really put me on the edge. I went down and the store was closed, so I couldn't get canvases. It's frustrative, creative energy. And I love that Danielle is about done. She has the best way of being a hostile bitch. Back to Allie. She says, this is the last summer we have together before everything changes, before everyone goes away. Everything's going to be different. It should only be positive right now. Jamie and Allie arrive at the Seattle airport in the evening, and for those interested parties, I'm here to tell you that the baggage claim they use is still that brutalist and that ugly. Uncle Greg and Aunt Jerry, not to be confused with the football player Jerry Rice, drive to their ginormous home overlooking the Puget Sound. These people have money. We learn that Aunt Jerry is Jamie's cousin because Jamie's mom and Aunt Jerry, their fathers, were brothers. We are introduced to the aunt and uncle's children and this odd cousin named Dan that has the same chart as Milton from the office space. He's wearing a vacant, uneasy smile and a bright red t-shirt from the Sam Houston State University of Huntsville, Texas. Go Bearcats! And also, Dan, go back to that mysterious other side of the family. Thanks. It's here that I want to pivot hard from Cousin Dan and move into the transit of the episode. And instead of looking at the planets on a specific day and comparing them against the birth charts of Jamie and Allie, I am upping the astrological game and I'm using a little technique called astrocartography. It sounds really complicated, but hear me out. You take your birth chart and then you plug it into astro.com. If you Google astrocartography, it can take your birth chart and it will use all the placements in your birth chart to create longitudinal lines up and down the globe. Let's say you get close to a city near a Venus line. Well, you might find a romantic connection. What if you find a place you want to travel to that's close to your Uranus? Well, you can expect the unexpected there. So for some of the remaining episodes where the rich girls are traveling, I'm going to use astrocartography to explain how Allie and Jamie are feeling in their vacation destination. Now, Jamie has her Saturn running close to Seattle, meaning... She might be exploring themes around hard work, dedication, you know cold old Saturn, about persevering and being responsible and having some level of commitment and purpose and drive to her life. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you, but just to confirm, Saturn locations aren't the easiest places to hang out. But as I always say on this podcast, if you do the work, Saturn will find a way to acknowledge and reward that hard-won struggle. On a completely different note, Allie has the moon nodes running closest to Seattle, We've talked about the nodes before. You have a south node and a north node. We're dealing with those south node vibes here. Been there, done that, not quite ready to get over this karmic cycle. The lesson here is about being able to overcome what you're feeling to become your own person and that you're moving away from needing that attention and validation of others to feel complete in yourself. 
Yeah, these girls have a to-do list that is gnarly. The next scene in Seattle doesn't quite carry those vibes, though. Allie, Jamie, and Aunt Jerry spend the day at the now-defunct boutique Jerry Rice and eat lunch in the middle of the store. Jamie finds her goddess dress, a black A-line gown, and MTV juxtaposes a Nirvana guitar riff with the designer stores downtown. Most of them also don't exist anymore. The afternoon reaches a particularly fantastical height when Jamie is gifted a diamond and sapphire chandelier earrings, even though the birthstone for January is garnet. Birthstones are a gateway drug to astrology. Yes, they are. But we finally see glimpses of the astrocartography coming through. Jamie, after receiving these beautiful chandelier earrings, calls her mom and mentions how affected she is by the fact that this store is owned by someone who is her family member. The people in her family built something out of nothing. It's maybe the first time we see Jamie contend with those Saturnian themes of structure and being in charge, and I think it's here that we see her maybe contemplate what structures she wants to be a part of and what she wants to create. Meanwhile, Allie leads a pretend psychology appointment for Jerry in a fitting room. Donning a serious bun and leather jacket, Allie asks Jerry about her life and where she'd like help. Back at the house, Jerry tries to boost Allie's confidence and say she thought she would make a really excellent therapist. But Allie is too self-conscious, and she just pivots into asking if she could lie about going to school for psychology, but just treat people anyway. Jerry then suggests that she might need to become a medium instead. That's not quite how that works. Spoiler alert, Jamie is actually now a psychiatrist for like her real job, and I feel like she would be seething at the idea that Allie was a more natural fit for that role. We also meet Jamie's friend from Seattle who shares her interest uh, that Allie does in dreading their hair and living in a tent. When Allie mentions that she doesn't know what she'll be doing next year, they make plans to move to Greenland. But then Allie has concerns over not being able to shower and how itchy she might be. And those might be downsides to her aforementioned hippie lifestyle. If Allie is seriously complaining about being itchy in a swimsuit, I'm not sure how dreadlocks and moving to an Arctic climate where the highest temperature is 50 degrees Fahrenheit is gonna work. But now is not the moment to think of the future. Tomorrow will be here before we know it. So let's live in the present. And for Allie and Jamie, that means snuggling in bed with one another and singing Winnie the Pooh books in a British accent. All of which leads me to this week's Allie and Jamie aphorism. Jamie says that Allie's intelligence is surpassed by 99% of people in the world, but not by their parents, Jamie's aunt and uncle, and they agree together, the Dalai Lama. Because what are friends for, if not to qualify how smart or pretty or good you are, right? Right? No, I'm, I'm being serious. That's like what friends do, though. <laughs> Guys? <laughs> anyway. The episode ends with Jerry, Allie, and Jamie dressed to the nines in Jerry's clothes, singing karaoke, and talking on the patio about life. And is there any better way to spend an evening? I don't think so. Join me every Wednesday for a new regular episode of Chart of Fortune, and next Friday I will be back with another Rich Girls recap. The summer vacation travels continue as Allie and Jamie head to Los Angeles. If you love Kitson, Randy Jackson, or burritos, then this episode is for you. This podcast is researched, written, performed, and edited by me, Elise Blaylock. Please subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. It helps other listeners find the show and relive the magic and terrible fashion of the early 2000s. Until next time, I love you the way Jamie loves her gifted diamond and sapphire chandelier earrings. Bye!